If you like the Live Wild podcast and enjoy hunting-related apparel, I've got you covered. I just launched some great t-shirts, hats, and sweatshirts under my own Live Wild brand. You can find them now on my website, remywarren.com. I just want to say thanks again, everyone, for all the support, and I really hope you enjoy these designs as much as I do. Who knows? Maybe you'll head over to my website and find your next lucky hat. I'm Remy Warren, and I've lived my life in the wild. As a professional guide and hunter, I've spent thousands of days perfecting my craft. I want to give that knowledge to you. In this podcast, we relive some of my past adventures as I give you practical hunting tips to make you more successful. Whether you're just getting started or a lifelong hunter, this podcast will bring you along on the hunt and teach you how to live wild. This podcast is presented by Mountain Tough and Yeti. I partnered with Mountain Tough because a lot of the tactics and hunt styles I talk about in this podcast require you to be in the best physical shape you can. Their app is designed for hunters to get you ready for the backcountry or any hunt you have planned this fall. Yeti's been a longtime supporter of mine, and they make some of the toughest products out there that are built to last and they're built for the wild. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Live Wild podcast. Right now, today we've got our Live Wild Live. This is one of my favorite episodes of the month because I get to talk to listeners like you. I get to answer questions, and it's just a lot of fun for me. Another thing that I really like about these is I try to do some pretty cool giveaways. So today we've got what I think is one of the coolest giveaways. We've got a one-horsepower dual grinder from Meet Your Maker. I actually got to test this grinder out before it came out, kind of part of the product development stuff, and they sent me one to test out, and I've been using it ever since. The thing I really like about it is, and what's pretty unique about it is, it actually gets a coarse grind and fine grind in the same pass. So for me, what that does is it'll there's less time making, especially when it comes to sausage making, where you want it double ground, but you don't have to run it back through. That's kind of always been the pinch point. Also, when you're making, I don't know, I've made more summer sausage this year than anything just because of this grinder, because I can keep it cold and I can run it through in one pass. So what happens when you're doing your grinding, especially when your sausage make, if the fat essentially heats up too much during the grinding process, then it renders when it's cooking. So you get that kind of chalky, not as good end product. Uh, this has definitely helped me kind of make a lot better uh, sausage, especially when it comes to sausage, snack sticks, other stuff like that. And it's also a lot faster because you're doing two grinds in one pass. So it's a pretty cool product. I think the price on those, it's about 750 bucks. They're on sale today right now for $550. But yeah, it's a pretty cool prize. So we're going to be giving one of those away during the call. Uh, if this is your first time calling in, what we like to do, just give your name, where you're from, um, and then just go into your question. And we're going to jump in. I've got, I kind of let the uh, auto, I've got like a randomizer for the prize winner. So stay on the lines. If you're, if you're listening, I'll probably do it at the end. I'm uh, setting that person aside. So you've already been selected. Maybe it's you. And um, yeah, when, you're, when your name comes, just, you know, give me your name, where you're from. If you're listening to this podcast later, we've got a bunch of people on the line here. They filled up really fast. I actually uh, added an additional 10 people. So you got 40 people sitting here on the line waiting for their questions to be asked. I, I kind of randomly go through these questions. Uh, if you were listening, you know, waiting in the waiting room, there was a song playing. It was uh, American Thread by Tim Montana. Great song. Uh, so if you haven't heard that, you can check that out as well. 
All right, we are going to jump right into our first question. I think our caller is Nate. Nate, you there? I am, yeah. Can you hear me all right? Yep, I got you good, man. All right, awesome. Awesome. Well, my name is Nate. I'm calling from Idaho, um, and I have a kind of a strategy, what should I do type question for you. Yeah, go for it. Um, so, Awesome. So I've got two days. There's two days left in a, a archery mule deer hunt that I'm doing. And I went up at a couple hours today that I went up just to see if I could spot something because uh, I'm going up again tomorrow. And it was kind of snowy most of the day. Um, and so I, I was hoping it would get him moving. And so that's why I went up and, and I got lucky and did find a group. I found a buck with four or five does. And, um, so I want to go back up tomorrow and, and try to find them. The, the thing that I'm worried about yep. is there is really low visibility. There was lots of fog and stuff today. And I'm thinking that'll be more of the same tomorrow. So I guess my question is what, what should my strategy be? Um, if it is foggy and low visibility to try and find that buck again. Yeah, that's a great question. I dealt with that a lot this season and no visibility is kind of a hunt killer in some ways. Like it's, it's probably the hardest obstacle to overcome, uh, especially when it comes to, to mule deer hunting. Now you've got a few things good going for you. One thing is you spotted that buck already and you kind of have an idea where they're at and where they're holding. You know, my guess is that those does probably like that pocket for some reason. Um, if you have no visibility, my first move would be going and getting into that uh, you know, close enough to that position where maybe I could, I could work into distance of visibility, like essentially still hunting that because I have some knowledge of that, uh, that there's a, there was a buck there. Now, the thing that might be working against you with the rut, those, those deer can move, those bucks could be pushing each other. Um, if it's stormy and you know, if you're getting precipitation, generally they're going to kind of pick a spot where there can, they can kind of bed down and be out of that, that heavy precipitation. So it might be some cover nearby, uh, so, you know, think about the area and maybe what's nearby, where are some other places they might be going if you're still getting precipitation or heavy precipitation tomorrow and they aren't where you last saw them, like if they're out in the open, maybe they've moved into that uh, a little bit thicker cover, which you kind of have to still hunt anyways. Now, another strategy that I've used with success where I hunt, um, and it, you know, it, you kind of have to hit it right. And I've used it I actually kind of learned this technique because we had a week of, um, I was guiding a guy that ha happened to have like a, the super tag in Montana and it was a pretty rare tag. He had a certain amount of time to hunt and I actually donated the hunt. I just gave the winner a free hunt, uh, but I really wanted them to get a good buck and we couldn't see anything. And so I started doing calling like rattling and, um, grunting and we killed a you know, 185 inch buck in a week that we had no visibility just by going to an area where I knew that there was high concentrations of deer. So that's also another thought is, you know, a lot of people don't think about calling mule deer. It can sometimes work like a charm and sometimes, uh, you know, it, it does, it can not work against you too. If there's enough visibility where it gives your position away and they can see you, but, uh, mule deer are very visual animals. And so when they, it, are, are trying to do their rutting and everything based on being visual and there's a, a buck nearby maybe cruising, um, you might be able to draw them in. Now, a buck that's pinned down with does, it's going to be a lot harder to call him away from those does, unfortunately. Um, so I would probably go into that same area with the idea that I'm going to be still hunting that buck and then just kind of moving slow, glassing what I can, moving slow, glassing what I can. 
The nice thing is if you catch tracks, you're going to know, especially if it snowed last night or whatever, or tonight, um, you're going to know, okay, well, they were here and you can almost essentially just track that buck. And I've had a lot of success doing that as well when the visibility is super low. So if it was me, I'd, I'd just pretty much go into that same spot and just pretty much like still hunt it and just be kind of head on a swivel, getting the wind right and moving into a, the, the area where they last were. And then maybe depending on the weather, where they might go next, if that makes sense. Like if they're going to get out of some of that precipitation, but if you got good sage cover and everything else too, they'll probably just be out where they, you know, where they like to be, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, okay, perfect. I'll, uh, I'll give that a try tomorrow and, and hopefully, uh, find success. Appreciate the help. Yeah, man. Well, let me know how it turns out. Shoot me a message. I'd be really curious to hear, hear how it goes. Yeah, I will. I will for sure. Hopefully I'll have a picture to send you tomorrow. Yeah, that'd be awesome, man. All right. Well, best of luck to you. Have a good one. All right. Thanks. Appreciate it. Yep. How you too? Bye. All right. We're going to go to our next caller here. Hey, welcome to the Live Wild podcast. Who am I talking to? Hey, what's up? This is Josiah. Hey, Josiah. So uh, you've, you've spent a fair amount of time in Kodiak. I, I live and hunt on Kodiak and uh, curious as to... Um, if you make decisions based upon what you're going to do with either mature billy or mature blacktail that you take, um, uh, basically kind of testing some meat out, or do you start stepping into uh, grinding pretty quick when you know you've taken a, a mature animal? I've gotten to the point where I'm able to consistently be choosy and, and take mature animals, but uh, it's uh, sometimes uh, pretty interesting how tough some of these older billies and, and older blacktail bucks can be, especially if they're ruddy. And so curious as to how you approach that grind process. Um, I'm kind of a purist in that I want to keep everything away from the grind and it's, you know, pristine form if I can. But at the same time, um, you know, a good grind is pretty awesome. And, yeah, I'd be stoked to use that grinder that you're, you're showcasing, you know, get a really good uh, burger going is, is a nice way to go. But I usually just use that as a default and curious as to how you approach that. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, every, every animal is different. I generally always try a little bit of the the backstrap or whatever and just kind of, yeah, do the, do the taste test. Not when it's fresh, but after it's broken down a little bit, like when I'm going to process it anyways, always cook something up. Because sometimes I've been surprised. Uh, I go, oh, that's actually pretty tender. You just don't know sometimes. But for the most part, when I go on a hunt, like if I hunt mule deer late season, I kind of already have in my mind what I'm going to do and the way that I'm going to butcher it. And most of it goes into grind or sausage. Uh, sometimes I just, you know, that's the animals that I take that time of year or on certain hunts. That's kind of what I already have in my head going into it. But another thing that I like to do is uh, some of the other cuts. I do a lot of slow cooking, slow roasting, or even maybe some pressure canning. So that's something to think about, you know, if you go, oh, well, you know, I've got enough grind already. What's some other ways that I can utilize something that maybe is a little bit tougher, uh, maybe something that's got, in air quotes here, that gamey flavor of maybe the rut or something else. Every once in a while, you get an animal like that. And so to make it, you know, more palatable, sometimes those slow cooking methods uh, work out really well. A lot of the a lot of the deer that I shoot now, I, I always keep the front shoulders bone in whole. And I just essentially slow cook those whole. I sear them and then slow cook them in some kind of sauce or something like that. And then, yeah, I mean, and then as it as it goes, you know, you, I'm sure you've encountered it where you go, I mean, blacktail can be some of the most incredible meat in my opinion. But I've had one blacktail that was just 
pretty strong and it became sausage and that was after the after the initial taste test of going oh okay yeah this thing's gonna need a little bit more seasoning yeah so that that's kind of how i approach it you know and then sometimes i just say you know we use a lot of grind in my house so if i if it's running low then you know i've got good animals that i actually shot a cow or calf elk that although i it pains me to to grind some of it you know, that's going to be our prime burger because we needed, we wanted a little bit more burger. And so that's going in, I'm just mixing it in with something else that I shot, kind of even it out a little bit. So I hope that answers your question. Unfortunately, you didn't win the grinder this time. We, we, our <laughs> randomizer has already selected a winner, but, uh, thank you so much for calling. And hopefully, you know, uh, well, I might as well mention this. I'm, there's going to be some other ways to win some stuff. I, I kind of saved up a lot of things throughout the year. And, um, and then I actually bought a few extra things just to kind of as a thank you for people, uh, for, you know, following along, listening to the podcast, you know, through social media and other things. So I like to give back in some way. So I've got some other prizes that I'm going to be giving out, uh, pay attention in coming episodes because there's going to be other ways to win. So thanks again for your call and, uh, good luck for the rest of the season or the rest of the year. All right, let's move on to our next caller here. Hey, welcome to the Live Wild Podcast. Hey, how's it going, Remy? Yeah, pretty good. Who am I talking to? Uh, my name is Spencer. I'm from Ogden, Utah. Oh, right on. You got a... Uh, and uh, my question... Yep. Yeah, I got, I got one for you. Sorry. <laughs> my question is, I'm, uh, I'm married. I have a young kid at home, and I know you're married. You also have a kid. What do you do to keep the relationship healthy and the wife happy, kids happy when you're gone so much as obviously you're, you hunt a lot more than I do, but my wife thinks I hunt just as much as you. So I don't know <laughs> what, what, uh, what advice do you have for kind of the young husband or dad, you know, to keep things healthy and happy when they're out hunting in the field? Yeah, that's a great question, man. And you know, it's something that I think a lot of us deal with. You know, I, I, since I've started a family and I've got another little one on the way here pretty soon, um, you know, I think a lot of people are like, oh, it, it will change. And, and it has changed for me in, in, you know, just like the way that I see my time uh, being used up. You know, when I'm gone hunting, uh, that's time taken away from the family. And I think that, you know, the ones that we leave behind often see it that way too. Uh, one of the things that I've, I try to be really good at is when I'm home, I'm really present. When, you know, like today, I, you know, when I have my free time when I'm here, it's like I, I like to uh, make sure that the time that I do spend when I'm not away is, you know, very present time. Um, I think that there's, you know, and this is just, you know, my, my personal philosophy, right? But there's, I think there's a lot of people that when they're home, they're there, but they aren't really present. And so I, I really make it yeah. a point that when I'm home with my family and we get to spend that time together, I choose like quality time. And it might, it doesn't have to be going out and necessarily doing something, but really paying attention to them. I'm, I'm, I put my phone away when I go home. I don't do the things that, you know, I, it's like, I just, I do a lot of the extra things around the house, right? It's like, I don't mind staying, you know, I'm the type of person, like I'm used to getting up early and, and working hard and doing these other things. So if there's ways that I can help out around the house when I am home, um, 
you know, I think it, it kind of, in some ways, and sometimes I just have to drop a few hints, you know, like today my wife's like, wow, you're really going the extra mile. And I was like, I know, <laughs> but it's because it's been a long season. I still have a hunt that I want to go on. Uh, she's like, yeah, no, I'll remember this. I got it. Um, so really just, you know, uh, being present. And then the other thing for me, you know, as, as this things kind of change with the family is, you know, I, uh, some of the hunts that I'm choosing to go on now uh, might be different than hunts that I chose in the past, right? I'm actually picking a few hunts. It's like, okay, this is a hunt that my fam- I can take my family on. And maybe it's not uh, a hunt that, like, if, I, if I've got the choice between five different hunts, maybe per- I'd, I really want to do this, you know, this hardcore backcountry hunt. Maybe I've got one of those planned. But maybe I'll add in one hunt where it's like, hey, I, I can bring my family along you know, it's going to be with me, you know, a real young daughter. Um, it's like pretty much road hunting in for the most part, right? We put on the backpack, we go on short hikes, um, but it's really focused around just enjoying that time together. And I'm still out in the field and I've actually been pretty successful while on those, those couple, uh, uh, couple hunts like that this year. And that's been actually more fun for me in some ways than some of these other, you know, crazy backcountry hunts. Not that I don't love those. And that's like my bread and butter, the things that really get me out there. But to be able to share some of this stuff with my family and like see my daughter and be like, buck and like just getting them involved in some way um, has been a lot of fun mm-hmm. as well. And it's a way that I can kind of, you know, add maybe another little, it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword where I'm, I'm kind of sneaking in an extra hunt, but also getting to spend that real quality time with them as well and doing something that we kind of all love. Um, so, you know, that depends on the family and, and how interested they are in getting out there with you. But a lot of people that I talk to, um, you know, they weren't even invited. Right. You know, like I know people that they're like, Oh no, we would go out, but we have, you know, there's that invite isn't really there. So, um, that's just something to think about for some people. Uh, so I hope that that helps. Yeah, no, that's great. No, I think those are some good things. The reminder, I got to be more present at home. So that's definitely something I need to do a lot better at. Yeah, no, well, I appreciate the call and, uh, Best of luck to you guys and to your to your family. So thanks for the call. That was a great question. I really appreciate that. And uh, best of luck to you. Happy holidays. Yeah, thanks. You too. Happy holidays. All right. Well, let's jump into our next caller here. Hey, welcome to the Live Wild podcast. Hey, Remy. This is S1 um, from Billings, Montana. And uh, <clears throat> my question is, uh, what's your opinion on... Uh, dry aging or venison and actually i got a little bit of a two-part question uh recently my wife uh had a we had a kid and she kind of due to the pregnancy lost interest in the taste of venison i'm trying to come up with some creative ways to get back into it yeah i mean that's a good question you know i um I like to age my stuff, but I, I'm not a big, I mean, it just depends, you know, I, it's like the variety thing a little bit too, right? We pretty much only eat wild game meat or at least at home. And so I like a little, like, I like things that are different all the time. So one of the things, so I guess I'll first address the, the aging thing. I know some people go crazy with the dry age. I like my meat aged, but I don't like those like real long, 30 day dry aged. I, sometimes it's okay. I don't dislike it. I don't hate it. But for me, like the prime is about five to seven days or less, you know, three to five days. Once that rigor breaks down, I kind of like my steaks to be a little more 
red. Maybe they aren't as tender, but they've got like more blood and blood in them. That's just the way that I, I prefer the taste in many ways. Um, but I do like to let it break down and, and get tender. So generally I'm aging it mm, about five days on average, I would say. And then, and, th- and that's the, another way that I also do it is all wet age stuff. So I'll actually vacuum seal it and then just, you can let it sit in the refrigerator for quite a while, uh, as long as it's perfectly vacuum sealed. Uh, that's a really good way where you don't lose that, like, you don't get that like dry aged flavor, but you still get that tenderness out of it. Um, I learned that from a few butchers actually in New Zealand that uh, showed me how to do that. And I, it's kind of been a game changer for me. So if you've got a good vacuum sealer, I invested in like a chamber style vacuum sealer. I talk about them a lot. They're just like, I feel like it's like a miracle of science. I don't know how they work, but they work. They're pretty crazy. Uh, if you aren't familiar with it, it's like the, the bag goes inside the vacuum sealer. It's like what most commercial uh, butchers use, and then you close the lid, it, and then somehow it just seals everything perfect every time. So I, I got one of those. I invested in one of those, and then I, I've been like doing a lot more wet aging with my meat, and that's just a way that I I found that it works really good for the flavor profile or whatever that I I tend to like. However, you know if it's dry aged right, it can be really good as well. Now, when it comes to I, actually, my brother's wife is uh, pregnant right now, and she kind of like lost. She just couldn't eat meat, and that happened on her first pregnancy as well. And then it, you know, afterwards it was fine. So I don't know if it's just one of those things. One thing that we do a lot of is just kind of mixing it up into into different ways of cooking. Sometimes it's like just that piece of steak is one thing, but you know, maybe mixing it into other dishes as well. Uh, something that we've like. I think that pretty much anybody could probably eat whether they, I think vegans would even like it. I make a lot of like Polish dogs out of our venison, Polish sausage, whatever. It's a little bit of a time investment. And then I think this is like the most requested thing I've ever made. And then we turn those into corn dogs, right? But I'm just saying like, you can go as basic as finding the food that people just always want to eat. Not that you can eat corn dogs every night, but just thinking of the things that, it's like, man, that's always good. Um, it doesn't matter if it's game meat or whatever. Another thing that I do a lot of is like slow cooking, getting it to, sh- you know, shredding and then adding that meat into something else, whether it be burritos, tacos. And we also do a lot of grind as far as like making lasagnas and different dishes like that. That's all basic stuff. But that's something to kind of think about is when people come over and they, they aren't really, they don't really eat game meat or whatever. Generally, I make something that is really familiar and it's f- not necessarily forward in the meat category, right? Where if you have a burger, the burger is very forward and, oh, here's a here's an elk burger and I don't like elk burger. And then they can kind of, it just, I don't know how, why or whatever. It doesn't make sense to me, but that happens. So if I've got somebody like, you know, a friend that's wife maybe doesn't want to eat game meat, we put it in things where it's something that you're used to. It's not necessarily right in front of your face is like, oh, this is an elk steak or a deer steak or whatever. And it tastes good. And so that's maybe something to think about. Awesome. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely have to look into that wet aging and then uh, come up with, find some <clears throat> recipes to try and hide it a little bit. Yeah. So it's not, like you said, so her face. Yeah. And I mean, the other thing is like, think about like what is like, okay, well, she she's liking this, you know, maybe it's, I don't know if it's all meat or whatever, whatever she likes, you know, start, start working it yeah, into it wasn't, that. It wasn't necessarily just venison. I mean, she. It took a while for her to eat any meat, but it's been been a lot tougher to get her back into eat 
enjoying venison. Yep. Yeah, you know, I think it's just like figuring out what what she likes and then, you know, finding those recipes that, um, you know, kind of cater toward that. So um, best of luck to you guys and and enjoy your, your holiday season coming up. Yeah, you too. Thanks, Remy. Yep. All right. We're going to go to our next caller here. Hey, welcome to the Live Wild podcast. Who am I talking to? Hey, this is Reed. Hey, Reed. How's it going? Where are you calling from? Good. How are you? I'm calling from Michigan. Oh, right on. My question is uh, kind of revolving around, you know, where to hunt as far as backcountry, front country. And I know it's kind of a loaded question, but I know you focus a lot on the backcountry, but definitely hit, you know, all areas and stuff like that. And it's just kind of seeming that, you know, that's kind of the theme nowadays is to get into the backcountry and get deep and that's where you find the animals. But doing some reading on places like Go Hunt and stuff like that just seems like those places are getting like super overcrowded and whatnot. And uh, so I guess how do you balance, you know, getting away from the road hunters versus getting away from the crowding in the backcountry, but also finding animals. Any tips relating to that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that, you know, I think that I talk a lot about backcountry hunting. And I think that when I think about backcountry hunting, right, that's just, that's one of the places that I really enjoy spending my time. But I wouldn't say that it's always the most, like the, you know, getting the furthest away isn't always the best route when it comes to hunting. And if I really look at the the majority of the hunting that I do, I would say that the majority of the success that we have, especially through guiding and other things, would be in that front country range. But what I like to think of it is, is you're you're essentially hunting far enough from the road, but close enough where you can be mobile and hunt a lot of different places. You can you can go to a bunch of different glassing points. You can check off a lot of different vantages, and you're. I would say that that's probably the most successful way to hunt is essentially hunting that range of like, okay, even something you can see from a road, but is going to take an exertion to get into. And, you know, I think when a lot of people, like there's a lot of traffic on roads and hunting. And this is a, I was in, I I had a tag this year. It was just like a little anecdote, right? I had a tag this year and it was for, I think we were mule deer hunting. We were mule deer hunting. And we went into this area where no one would be, and you had to go through a bunch of deadfall and all this stuff. And we, we hiked in there and I've hunted in there many times, but it's pretty hit or miss whether there's animals in there and there's no animals in there. And we really grinded to get in there and there was no animals. Right. And so my buddy was like, he's like, as you know, we were, we, I actually had to be back on a certain day. And so we were driving out half day in the middle of the day. And I was telling him, I'm like, this area has way better country than where we were, where we're driving through. But I was like, it's a madhouse with vehicles. He's like, really? And yeah, he had never been in the area. And so we're driving. We're just, I was like, let's just drive out that way just to drive out. And so we're driving out and we are being passed by, I don't, I don't even, I think we counted 38 vehicles within this section of whatever. I'm like, this is, this is absolutely insane. And so we, I pulled off on an area because I was like, I could see these other vehicles coming up the road and I just didn't want to dick with it. So we're like, let's just glass for a little bit and pop off the other side. And we pop off the other side and immediately start picking out, there was an elk season at the time and we immediately start picking out elk. And then we just immediately start picking out some deer and we saw some white tails. And I'm like, 
what are these people doing that are driving these roads? And so the, you know, and one of the, there was a guy coming up and I just walk up there and I flag him down. And I was like, hey man, what's going on? What are you hunting? Oh, we're hunting elk. Okay. I was like, see anything? Nope. Haven't seen anything. Been here seven days. I was like, cool. Come look in the spotting scope over here. Holy shit. And these elk are like 800 yards from the road. You know what I mean? And I realized that most of those people driving around are literally looking for something that's standing in the road. I couldn't figure it out. Um, you know, and it's like, sometimes all you have to do is just stop and look around and, and glass some areas and just not be driving around. It really amazed me at how little people see. And like, I, this was an area that I would, didn't want to even touch, right? Because there's so much traffic. And here we saw more animals there than we did in any of these other places. And, you know, half these people that we passed were looking pretty discouraged and it was pretty easy for us to find animals. And all we did was just stop and glass for 30 minutes. Not that that's always the case, right? You know, I mean, it was just, but I think that there's that in between where you can find an area that's busy and just because there's somebody else there doesn't mean that they see what you see or doesn't mean that they're really sitting down and picking it apart. Um, and that became very apparent to me this year when I was just like, okay. And we weren't even, we were just stopping to let people go by. We were trying to get out of there. So it was kind of a, a real eye opener. And I've encountered that so many times over the years in different places, in different ways. So, you know, it, there is that like where you pack in so far and there's 20 trucks at trailheads these days and everybody's up at the basin and it's just like, it ruins that experience. So you got to find those places where the people aren't or the people aren't paying attention. And that could be really anywhere in many ways. Awesome. Yeah, thanks. That uh, Your story kind of falls in line with some of the advice that I've heard from some friends and stuff like that as far as like, it doesn't take much to get off the road to kind of find them and uh, you just got to at least a little bit more than the average guy and probably get into some some games so yeah that's awesome thank you yep yeah appreciate the call and yeah i mean i've i got to tell this other story because it just it like i know that i mean a lot i think it was last year i had was guiding and our hunters had tagged out and um we were just looking for a, a deer which there's not very many deer where we hunt for whitetails and um so we're, we're, we're coming back and we're just, we hunted the morning and we're coming back and I spotted this bull. I just kind of like stopped and looked and right below the road, I see this bull elk and it goes and beds down in the trees and like 50 yards off the road. I'm like, well, okay, that's weird. I'm like, okay. And we sit there watching and two vehicles drove past it. And this bull just knew, I mean, it was in the regen. So it's like, once it sat down, it was gone to the world, but you go, huh, that's interesting. You know, there are animals that are around these places where it's getting crowds and other things. Now that's probably, I mean, I don't, you know, I, I've only seen that once in my life. So I was probably pretty lucky. Right. But you just never know where you're going to find things and, and who's looking and how hard you're looking. Not that, you know, now for the most part too, um, I know I don't see a lot of things around the roads in many times, but also that's not where I'm hunting. So you do find things where you're hunting, if that makes sense. Um, it could be the back country, it could be the front country, but uh, we, we always have this joke. And this is like our, uh, when we see guys that are just driving around, right? We always joke, well, you can't shoot them from the truck if you're out there walking around, right? But it, I mean, <laughs> that's like the old timer philosophy, right? You're going to find animals where you're hunting them. 
Um, and you know, the more time you put in. So I think that that mid range where, Hey, there's people here, but all I have to do is walk over this mountain and get away from these people on the roads. And I'm not interfering with people that are packed in for days. Uh, there's a, there's a real good balance there that you can find some really good honey holes. So best of luck to you, man. Awesome. Thanks for me. Appreciate it. Yep. All right. We're going to jump into our next caller here. Welcome to Live Wild Podcast. Who am I talking with? Hello, this is uh, Ethan from Wisconsin. How's it going, Ethan? Uh, not too bad. Uh, say my question here for you is, um, when hunting elk, how do you go about um, chasing, or how long do you go about chasing an elk that you've recently spooked? Obviously, every situation is a little bit different, but you can just kind of run through your uh, guidelines or your tactics for um kind of chasing um, an elk that's been previously bumped or spooked. Yep. Um, during archery season or rifle season or kind of both? Uh, mostly archery. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, it, it depends, but the first step when I've spooked something is I will, you know, make those calls. You know, it depends on how, first thing I think about is how did they spook and the terrain in which, where they're going for the most part, I've, I've been very successful getting back on elk. I can nearly, I would say more times than not, I will get on an elk that I've blown out. Now, if the elk blows out because it's winded you, the, the percent, the chance goes down, right? If it saw you, the chance is pretty decent that you'll probably get back on him. If you think it just heard you, chance is pretty decent that you'll get back on him. If you think you just spooked one cow and it took the whole herd, chance is really decent that you'll get back on him. Now it's because, you know, you got to kind of assess why are they running? Uh, if they all winded you, they know what the, they know what's going on and they're probably going to move, but it depends on the area as well. Like, you know, a lot of the places that I hunt, I kind of have an understanding of what's around and where the elk might go. And so I, I will generally get back on the elk or kind of relocate them in some way. Now it might not mean following the way that they went. It might mean pulling out, going to back to a good vantage point and see, okay, where are they going to go? Getting to that, like sometimes I just, if I spook an elk, it's like instead of going after them, well, I'll call, I'll go after for a little bit and then I go, okay, now I got to get, I got to relocate these things because they're, they're sometimes easier to relocate when they are spooked because they're moving, right? So you get to that vantage and you go, okay, I can cover this area where they might go uh, and wait here and watch. And I've, I've had a lot of success getting back on animals that way. Now there are those times where you're hunting in thick timber and you know, you, you spook them and there's three ridges that they could go up and down and you just don't have the time to catch up. Uh, but for the most part, if you're calling and you know why they've spooked, you can kind of gauge like, okay, how much time should I spend trying to relocate this one? How spooked are they really? And kind of get a look, good look at the topography as well and say, okay, how easy is it for me to kind of continue to chase these elk, right? It's super easy for an elk to run down, run up the other side. Uh, maybe it's not as, as easy for us. So thinking about, okay, well, is it going to be worth investing time in an animal that knows that I'm here? Or is it going to be better time spent just maybe finding something else? So I always play that scenario as well. But for the most part, I found a lot of success just trying to get back on elk. Sometimes they're a lot harder to get within bow range or trick. So maybe I just want to keep tabs on them and, and play it different in the evening or the next morning. But uh, just kind of keeping tabs on it, especially when they're kind of few and far between. It's a good, it's a good habit to get used to trying to refine those elk and figure out where they're going. You know, I hope wow. that helps. That's great information. Yeah. What else about what you know? 
Yeah, man. Well, keep me posted. I know uh, it's like a lot of planning and thinking about the next elk season already. There's a few elk seasons around still that are that are still in play. But, um, yeah, keep me posted, man. Hopefully uh, it works out for you. Hopefully you don't even spook the elk and it just you, you get that opportunity and, and connect. But, yeah, I think part of the, the big thing about elk hunting is you have those chances, like they're in swirly wind conditions, things go wrong. They come in, you know what I mean? There's so many different variables and scenarios. And sometimes you'll be hunting in a place where, man, it was hard to find elk even to start with. And you want to make sure you know where those elk go. And so following up and, and just investing that time into it, generally you catch them probably, I think in less distance than most people think. When I was growing up as a kid, it was like, they always said, oh, if you spook an elk, you'll never find it again. And then as I kind of like started hunting on my own, I realized that that wasn't the case. I could pretty much connect with most of the bulls that, or most of the elk that ended up getting spooked. I could refind or get on within a relatively uh, short distance. So just something to think about. Right on. Yep. Well, I appreciate all you do. And I guess one quick question for you. Could you say uh, one quick thing to my uh, hunting buddies here for you? Um you just say, um, the Anderson boys, sorry, but Ethan's a better hunter than you. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, I don't know. Okay. All right. Anderson boys. Sorry, but Ethan claims he's a better hunter than you. <laughs> oh, perfect. That's going to, that's going to get him riled up. I got him convinced to buy some new Sinead boots right uh, now. Yeah. All right. <laughs> all right. Perfect. All, right, well, all right. Well, have a good one. See you guys. Thank you. Hey, welcome to Live Wild Podcast. Who am I talking with? Hey, Remy, this is Dawson. I'm uh, from Banks, Oregon, and uh, I'm living up in northern Idaho now. Um, so I got a question for you. Um, so I'm I'm 23 now. I've hunted, you know, a good portion of my life. Uh, I just recently got into bow hunting. What, last year was my first year. This year, this year was my second. Um, I got a Oregon Rosie this year, and um, while I was living in Idaho, but this new Idaho area for me is a little different. Um, so what's the most effective way to figure out where elk will be and to locate new elk in heavily forested areas like Northern Idaho, where glassing and or calling are not as good an option for that area, assuming minimal clear cutted areas and the elk not wanting to talk, maybe too much other hunters and then general season tags or um, over, over, over calling September, early October hunts. Yep. No, that's a great question. And I think, you know, one of the things like I really like to hunt timber, um, especially when they're calling, right. You know, you, you get this opportunity, but I think that the hard part about hunting timber in that September timeframe is, you know, th there's a lot of country that you're calling in that you aren't getting in response. In my opinion, it's probably because the elk aren't there or generally aren't there when you're calling. Now, um, yeah. one of the, the nice thing, I think that like, if you want to successfully hunt timber, um, a couple of things come into play. And I think that the biggest factor is if you live in that area, right? Because finding and understanding those elk throughout the season is going to be your best bet. Understanding, okay, where are these elk summering? Where are these elk right now? Where are they wintering? Where are they doing their rutting? What are the ridges that they're traveling on? Um, there's a lot of timbered country out there that doesn't hold elk, but there's those ones that do. And I, and I find that topography is the biggest indicator of where the elk are going to be. So I'm looking for those. The, the first thing I look for is ridges and I look for a certain type of ridge. I'm looking for like those travel ridges and those bedding ridges, right? Those areas where it, it might be steep country 
And now, okay, where are those areas where it benches out for a little bit? And I start checking those areas for sign. Now I might be doing this in the summer a lot and going, okay, where are those wallows at? Where are these places that have the things that elk need in September? And where's the sign for the elk where they're rutting, right? And we just kind of extrapolate out all the evidence throughout the year. And sometimes it takes a while to figure out, okay, where are these elk living? Uh, sometimes it, it includes, you know, maybe if you aren't an archery hunter, but you can go out and bugle during the archery season and figure out where the elk are for that October season. A lot of like boots on the ground pre-scouting, but I find those areas starting with topography on the map and that those topo lines and just really reading actually I, I switch it to because this is the way that I started doing it maybe but also I feel like it, it's just easier to read it's like switching it to the the old school style topo map and then just understanding that topography of what's under those trees uh, you can go in 3d mode and go in all that stuff but the topography, it, like I'm really looking for those changes in topography within that country. Most of that kind of northern Idaho country is pretty steep, timbered country, especially in that stuff where it's not, you know, the stuff that's not logged is probably not logged because it's real steep country. Um, generally, I, I could be stepping out of turn here for where you're hunting, but generally. And so finding those places where, okay, you know, I do find elk in those. So you've got ridges in in draws right the draws hold the water the ridges hold that travel and bedding and then they they kind of bump back and forth between those two areas and so i start to look for those areas and then those faces that maybe offer good bedding and then i start to like say okay what season am i hunting what are the signs in this area that i can find while i'm scouting and i start marking those places and then checking those places and then you have a bunch of good places to hunt then that's where you can kind of dive into now we start calling in a lot of good places where we know elk are going to be. And sooner or later, you're going to get, okay, boom, bulls are, are popping off in this spot. Okay, now we know there's, there's elk there. So th that's just kind of the one of the ways that I think about hunting timber. And it, it can be a long game, but once you've figured it out, it can be really successful because I think a lot of people, they just kind of show up and they, they don't find that success in that kind of country and they get discouraged real, real fast. But uh, when you're in their zone, when you're in their home, it can be one of the easiest places to call an elk to bow range. It can be hard to get a shot sometimes, but it can be really good. And it can be a really good way to kill a mature bull in general unit areas, in my opinion. So something to think about. Cool. Awesome. I, I appreciate um, the answer to the question. I mean, I guess the only thing uh, I mean, I'll add is just something that I definitely noticed this year just you know, I've, I've, I've always rifle hunted in this last two years archery hunting, but I would say it definitely seems like that midday madness, you know, just side hilling, just finding a random spot and just side hilling and just, you know, working and working into those areas. Um, still relatively new to a lot of the stuff, but working my way into those middle areas and then just kind of sneaking in on them. And then that's when I was able to get them to start calling this year. And that's how I ended up getting on a bull this year or getting my bull this year is just because just stay persistent, just be out there in the woods and just keep at it. Oh, totally. Yeah. I think most my, this year, most my, uh, all my encounters, well, I would say all my encounters, most of my encounters were from 11 to one. And it's like, just, I mean, I've killed my biggest bull that way. I've killed a lot of bulls in the middle of the day in the timber. Yeah. Just getting into those, like third of the way up the mountain into those pockets where they're laying down or they're they're doing their thing and they hear something coming and they aren't expecting it there's probably not a lot of other hunters doing that generally maybe now they'll listen to podcast and that'll be the whole goal but i think that that's a that's a really good tactic i've had a lot of success with it and it's one of my favorite ways to hunt 
I, I've killed more animals midday than probably mornings and evenings in my opinion. So I think that that's like a, that's also a really good strategy to employ in the, in the timber. And the other thing about timber, you know, you can, it's cooler in there, right? That's why they're there. They're, they're enjoying themselves and it's a lot cooler in, in those middle of the day spots. So you can get that action in the middle of the day as well. So something to think about. Appreciate the call, man. And best of luck to you next season. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Yep. Have a good one. You too, sir. All right. We're going to take a couple more callers here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop way down to the bottom of the list here. All right. Hey, welcome to the Live Wild podcast. Who am I talking to? Yeah, this is Michael from Oregon. Hey, Michael. How's it going? Doing well, thanks. Uh, yeah, just quick question about uh, do-it-yourself out-of-state hunt. Yep. Uh, first one, and just curious as to uh, what you might say the easily overlooked detail for, for people doing it their, their first time out-of-state do-it-yourself like that. Yeah, I mean, I think the most overlooked detail is first like how important the drop like not necessarily the draw process but the tag selection process is right there's so many options and i think a lot of people just get like focused in or or whatever into something that you hear like oh this is the this is the hot ticket or this is the that or whatever I kind of look for those areas. Like, I just want to say, I just want to tag, and I try to look into finding a place where I might be able to go again. Well, you first have to ask yourself, like, is this something that I could do multiple times? And if your if your answer is yes, maybe you can go every couple of years or whatever. I think that it's probably more beneficial to kind of make a long term plan and say, okay, I want to hunt this area two or three times, and find those places where that is doable. Right. I think that some people, people kind of chase the hot thing and there's, you know, whatever. And I think that just kind of making a plan like that, where you're looking a few years out is, is going to do yourself a lot of favors in the long run, because you're going to learn a lot that first year, you're still going to have opportunities and other things. And then you might be able to take what you learn and, and use it again. Another thing that I think about as far as like the planning process goes, that is kind of just maybe a little bit overlooked is, um, you know, your ability to possibly, you know, and it's not possible for everyone. I don't know where you're coming from or where you're planning on hunting, right? But, you know, finding those places that are close enough where you might be able to make a scouting trip in some ways, like uh, make a summer trip out of it. I know that I, I've talked to people that have done that. I do that in, in a lot of places that I, if I can, oh man, I'll go up there and check it out this summer and just get a lay of the land and really kind of get a little bit of boots on the ground for a weekend or whatever, right? So sometimes people are going way too far. It's like, well, you you drove past three states of good elk country that you could have hunted and maybe made a, a trip in between to go to this other spot, you know, for, you know, you're, you're driving somewhere that you don't know anyways. Uh, maybe go to a spot that you, is a little bit closer that you can access and maybe hit one time in the summer before you head out there that's just something to think about, you know? And then outside of that, uh, when it comes to like boots on the ground, maybe you can't do that, right? Just really kind of diving into elk behavior and just really tearing apart those topo maps, the 3d maps, really kind of investing time in learning how to efficiently e-scout, you know, I, I use the go hunt maps and I'm on that software every single day. Like there's probably not a day where I'm not jumping on there and looking at random things. I'm scouting areas that I've never applied for. Never, I just, 
I actually found an airplane the other day on it. Um, like that's how much time I'm spending on the mapping software is like, I think I found a plane. Like I'm going to go check it out, see if it's a crashed plane or if it took a picture of a plane in the sky. But you know, I'm, I'm constantly looking at areas and sometimes I'll just randomly fly to a spot and well, this looks like good mule deer country, elk country, drop a pin and then start researching the area from there and go, Oh yeah, well that explains it. It's a once in a lifetime draw. Okay. Well, let's keep moving on. But spending a lot of time understanding, learning maps and just looking at a lot of things. And once you've got your, that tag figured out, really building out that hunt plan and really just, you know, putting in a lot of time, familiarizing yourself with what's around. You know, I was on a, a hunt uh, two years ago in an area that I'd never been before. And I just hammered out the, the 3d scouting and everything. And I, and I was hunting with some guys that knew the area, but I always like to kind of do my own thing and, and just know, like, I like, I find that I like it to hunt a certain way. And so anyways, long story short, we were in the area and I forgot to, I somehow, I don't know, I got a new phone and then I realized that I didn't have the maps downloaded on there. And, and so we're talking about the area and we hike in and I'm just like, you know, we're talking and these guys are like, how do you know where all this stuff is? And I'm like, you know, I'm on a ridge. I'm like, yeah, we should probably go to base. It's like, I've memorized these mountains because I've spent so much time e-scouting this. I know what's where from where we're at, you know? So that's the kind of thing that I, I think is important because when you get there, you know, it pays to just be able to put some time into it before you actually step foot in your unit. So I covered a lot of stuff, but I hope that that kind of helps, you know, I think that in, 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 summation pre-work goes a long way in my opinion yeah right on that's helpful thank you appreciate it yep well appreciate it and thanks for the call keep me posted let me know how how you end up doing of course thanks all right let's go to our next caller here hey welcome to live wild podcast who am i talking to hey this is cody hey cody where are you calling in from today oregon the willamette valley right on the edge of the coast all right on very cool. Well, Cody, before we get into your question, I've got good news. You were the lucky caller selected to win the one horsepower meat dual grinder. So really congratulations, well. man. That is a uh, awesome. incredible piece of equipment. So um, uh, that's, uh, man, your processing game just got elevated. I know I've been really yeah, liking no, that thing. Sweet. I think it's, they make some awesome stuff and that's one of my favorite things. So. I've been borrowing my dad's grinder and stuff, so I was listening to you explain it before. I think it sounds freaking awesome. Right on, dude. Well, congratulations. And what I'll have you do, um, I'll have you uh, shoot me a direct message on Instagram, because we'll, I'll, and then um, and then I'll send you information to email me. So you can do that after the call here. But uh, go ahead. Let's jump into your question now. Yeah. Well, first, thanks for taking my call. Now I'm like super excited being raised. <laughs> I'm calling because I have the Oregon. We have two seasons of archery for blacktail. And right now is like the late season, so like during the running time. But on the coast here, it rains a lot. And like I have my bag, and I'm looking at um, exams on the 12th, I believe. And so I go look at the forecast, and the next 10 days is just great. You know, and you don't want to just sit at home. And it's not raining 24-7 around here. But if you were to shoot something, they say like a light to medium rain, um, what kind of tips do you have for like following a blood trail? So I'm not super experienced. I'm fairly new to archery hunting and everything. I killed one black kill last year, but like 
do you get down quicker from your stand? Do you start hopping on the blood trail? Do you just not shoot something? I'm looking for some experience in that area. And what you kind of recommend? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, here's, in a nutshell, uh, there's a few things that I kind of consider, right? You know, for the most part, the rain, I mean, it, it it's actually probably more wet vegetation that makes it harder to kind of find a blood trail in many ways. There's a few things to think about, right? When you're bow hunting, a good lethal shot is generally leaves like a really good blood trail. I mean, and that there's obviously things happen, right? Um, you can make a bad shot. You can, this, it can jump. It can do this. It can do that. Uh, for the most part, when you double lung an animal, the standing broadside, they're dead pretty quick. They're dead fairly close. Yeah. And there's a pretty decent blood trail going there. Um, you know, the rain, whatever, it, it kind of prevents it sometimes from getting on the brush or other things. Like there, I've hunted a lot of places where it's not just rain. There's places where you hunt where it's very hard to find blood trails, right? Yeah. Um, so I don't really think about it in a way of like, oh, it's it's going to be too hard to blood trail the animal. Um, but I do always put that emphasis on making that good shot. Now, obviously things go wrong. If it's if it's one of those things where it's like, man, I'm I'm hunting, I've got time, and it's the last five minutes of evening, and there's a lot of rain, and there's more rain in the forecast. In my opinion, that's something where sometimes I go, look, I don't have the right shot. It's not super close. It's not a gimme. I'm just going to wait. I'm going to wait until I get that right opportunity because the right opportunity is to make that lethal kill. Um, you know, I don't want to be following this hard to find trail in the dark. I don't want the possibility of something going wrong and pushing the animal and then not having the trail to trail it up and find it. Right. So you gotta, you kind of got to match the conditions to the situation. If you're, if it's like mid morning and it's raining and you've got a deer standing 20 yards broadside, unaware, I'm shooting it all day, every day, right? Uh, whether it's yeah. driving rain or whatever, because I know that I'm going to find this animal. Um, if it's like an alert deer at uh, 10 minutes before sunset and it's same conditions, that's the that's the exact opposite. I don't know that I'm going to find that animal. So, and, and that's just my personal uh, opinion on it, you know. But you know, you might be surprised. Like I've I've shot animals when it started to rain, and you do still find the blood there. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's just, it just depends on like the, the situation. Right. But in that real wet country, I've been in some country like that and you like, you see something and it wouldn't matter what was going on. It's wet enough where it's, it's like the, the color of there's enough brush that obscures it moss that soaks it up. You know, like, man, there's not a lot of great blood trail here, no matter what, but you can start thinking about other things, following tracks, you know, following, you know, the trail that is probably going to travel if you're hunting like really thick stuff. Generally, they follow the the path of least resistance. So you see those tracks and other things on the trail. There's other things to follow other than just blood when it comes to trailing an animal as well. And that's something to think about. Um, so cool. Yeah, that's, that's perfect. I, re- I really appreciate that because I've been sitting over here psyching myself out about the rain. It's like, I don't want to just sit at home, but I don't have any experience tracking the rain. I mean, I'm used to hunting elk in September here where it's, like eight degrees, and it's like that's not a concern. Um, I haven't really shot anything in the rain with a gun either, so it's like I was just kind of curious what your input was, and it really makes a lot of sense just kind of being situational and studying a lot on shot placement and all that stuff just to try and, like you said, get the quickest double line uh, off the 
optimal shot so that it goes down hopefully within sight, you know, probably in the tree stand. So hunting old growth timber so you can see for a while. So hopefully all those different oh, things yeah. all factor in. I was kind of thinking that as long as you hit them good, it shouldn't be a problem, but I was hoping that a professional could tell me. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's good. You know, like the other thing I think about too, when I'm hunting, like I, I hunt every day, whether it's, you know, whatever the weather I go out hunting and, you know, because the odds of getting something at home are zero. Right. So even if you're out there and you don't feel like the condition is right to take the shot, you're matching the odds of staying home. So you can kind of be a little more patient because you're like, Hey, I was going to stay home. It was 0% chance. Now I have something here and I just don't feel like the condition's right. Well, I'm not going to shoot. Okay, I'm not getting it today, but at least there was that possibility that maybe the, the condition would have been right. Um, and that's kind of the way that I like to think about it in many ways. So uh, best of luck to you. Congratulations on winning the, uh, the grinder. And uh, thanks again for the call. Let, keep me posted, man. Let me know uh, how the hunt turns out and, and uh, just send me some. Uh, hopefully, you're, be, you're going to be grinding the buck here yeah, pretty I'm soon. So. Hopefully, I'll be breaking in with a black tail in a couple of weeks here. Yeah. Perfect. Right but on, anyways, man. Thank you for taking my call. I really appreciate it. Yep. Thanks for calling. All right. We're going to go to our last caller here. Hey, welcome to the Live Wild podcast. Who am I talking to? This is Jacob. Colorado. Jacob, how's it going, man? Right on. What's your uh, what's your question? Um, I have a question about like rifle shooting tips and um possibly just like like what you take, what kind of kit you take in the field, like bipod, sticks, tripod, and um maybe just some general tips on like just how to extend your effective range out like three to 500 yards, something like that. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think that a lot of the, the, the stuff for being a good shot in the field comes to practicing, uh, not necessarily just shooting. I've talked about it before, but like those just practicing, steadying your rifle in a lot of different scenarios. Um, I generally don't necessarily carry shooting sticks, uh, but it depends on the situation, the type of country. Sometimes I have a bipod that I put on my rifle. If it's real open country, I know I can lay down and take a good shot. Most of my shots are off my pack. Um, or I, if I've got, uh, if it's an area where I'm like packing in and using trekking poles, I'll use trekking poles as shooting sticks. I actually think that they're better shooting sticks than shooting sticks in many ways. Um, by crossing the, I just cross the two straps and making you know make shooting sticks out of that um but there's a there's a lot of different ways to steady your rifle and i think that it, it the best way um is just kind of figuring out like knowing how to quickly steady your rifle and then the points of contact to get your body steady uh i think that one of the things that like the mistake that a lot of people make is you know holding the rifle too much where it's like you you're, you've got your rest right but you aren't re- your your on gun elbow isn't rested on maybe your knee or the ground it's rested on it's like free floating a lot of you're holding the gun while you've got it on a rest um instead of letting the rest hold the gun you know the thought of being a better shot is just the the people that are real good shots are very quick at being able to steady their rifle in different scenarios now one of the things like and that doesn't just necessarily mean laying down right prone i think is probably the most stable way to shoot that's how i sight my rifle in 99 percent of the time but um you know, unless I've got like a bag and bench or whatever. But, um, I think that like, you know, you can even be a really good shot 
offhand and knowing how to stabilize your rifle that way. There's one technique that I use where I actually, you know, if it's within a certain range and I can't get down, I'll, I'll flip my pack around, have it strapped to my body. The gun will rest on the pack that's strapped to my body. My off elbows rested um, into my body and I can make pretty good shots that way. And I practice this and I practice getting steady that way and I practice shooting that way. Um, I've actually got, I should double check this. I'm going to say it and then if it's not there, I'll make sure it is. Um, I've got some videos that I made about different ways to stabilize a rifle on my YouTube channel. Definitely check that out. And if it's not there, I'll, I'll put it up within the next few days here. Um, but there's a lot of uh, just kind of interesting ways that you can think about getting your rifle steady and then being able to move and, and keep it steady, uh, if that makes sense. Like if your target moves, being able to adjust fast and smooth and, and being able to get back on and, and stay steady in a certain way. So um, there's some there's some good uh, – that would be a good resource just to kind of see some of the things that I talked about here. But, um, yeah, I think that that's one of the things just the more you can practice getting that rifle steady, the better you're going to be at shooting at those distances. So I hope that helps. Yeah, that helps. Right on, man. Well, appreciate the call, and uh, best of luck to you. All right. Thanks, Remy. Appreciate it. All right. Well, thanks so much, everybody that called in. That concludes our Live Wild Live session. I'm really excited as we kind of go into this December season because uh, I've got a lot of fun stuff in store for you. As we, as we come into the holiday season, I'm a big fan of Christmas. I've, if you've listened to my other podcast, you've heard some really good Christmas stories. We've got a good, a incredible Christmas special coming up that I think everybody's going to enjoy. And then, you know, I think there was actually a lot of cooking content questions here. Um, I like to use some of these Q and A's to kind of, and I'm, I'm scrolling through some of the screened calls, and there's a lot of other cooking questions. We're going to throw in some kind of postseason wild game cooking thoughts and philosophies and tips and tactics. So I think that that'll be a lot of fun, especially as we go into the, the holiday season. If you haven't checked it out, we, we, I just released a bunch of cooking videos on my YouTube channel. So there's about uh, quite a few new ones there. So just at Remy Warren YouTube channel, or Remy Warren YouTube channel. You can check that out. We're also going to be dropping a lot of really good hunting videos here coming up. I know it's been a little bit dry, only because we've been out. <laughs> it's kind of a catch-22, right? You're either out in the field hunting, which that's the part that I really like, and then there's that part where you have to turn these hunting videos into videos. So it's a little bit of a process in that way, uh, and so there's kind of a, a lag for me between being in the field and then making the videos. So I've got a lot of videos in the docket that are um, pretty much done. Uh, so those are going to be coming out. So if you don't subscribe to our YouTube channel, go check it out. There's going to be a lot of great stuff coming into the holiday season to check out. And then uh, starting next year, there's going to be – I've got a system of making it a lot more consistent with some of these videos and other things. So been on a lot of great hunts this year, and it's just – it's fun to be able to share those with you guys. Uh, so that's something to think about and check out. You know, if you're, if you're looking for a holiday gift or something for yourself to better yourself for next year, uh, I can definitely suggest outdoor class. I know I've talked about it before. I've got a series on mule deer in there. I'm preparing my, you know, I'm, I do want at least one each year. Um, I'm preparing right now. I'm sitting down and kind of thinking out and outlining my next one as we come into this next year. 
Uh, it's going to be really good. I'm really excited about that. But also there's some really great content on there. Uh, the cooking stuff really, there's some great cooking stuff on there that I've been going through myself and just checking out. Jamie Teagan has some great stuff on there. There's some new stuff in there as well. So there's just a lot of really good stuff in there. So, you know, if you, if you want to get signed up for that, you can always use code LiveWild. And I think the, well, if you're listening, if you're on this call, there's still a good black or a Cyber Monday deal or whatever. But once that's gone, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you can still get 20% off using code LiveWild and you get access to all the courses in there and all the new courses that are going to continually get added. So that's something to think about. I hope that you guys check it out. And until next week, I like to end these live ones with Live Wild. We'll catch you guys later. Or Live Wild. Either one. It's all good. Awkward goodbye. Some of my favorite. All right. See ya. <laughs>